Hello, and welcome everybody to, according to Andrew, number 89, Review of Ages of Discord. So I just finished up this book the other day, and I uh, wanted to get a review out for you guys. Uh, there's a lot in it, a lot of good stuff, um, <clears throat> a lot of similarities to Secular Cycles, but there's also some uh, variance and difference there, um, primarily the uh, difference being that they're looking at industrial society and the ages of discord where uh, secular cycles was completely agrarian societies uh, and the society that they're looking at is the united states right now uh, which is particularly relevant because of all of the political um, discord and um, issues that we're having uh, it's a really good book i definitely recommend it i'll just go through quick um, some of the kind of the flow of the book so it starts off uh, chapter one just kind of giving you uh, what these historical cycles are, why we're studying them, the lessons we can pull from them, just kind of an intro to the the overall idea. Uh, chapter 2 goes into the math behind it, uh, what equations were used, uh, how they used them, all that stuff. Uh, that way, if you wanted to and you wanted to study it yourself, you can kind of dive into it. It's almost like a very extended uh, research paper, but uh, I don't feel like any words were wasted in that regard it's only 240 ish pages 250 pages so it's it's relatively short <clears throat> um book wise i guess I, my average uh, i assume for a book is 300 so um and it it goes through different things so it does the structural dynamic uh system so that basically the the sick uh cyclic cycle that you have is you have uh overpopulation at the lower level that overpopulation then drives um <clears throat> uh, greater wealth for the elite uh and causes greater competition for the uh, commoner class that those commoners then some of the upper level ones look to become elite aspirants to try to escape their current uh, situation uh get out of that middle class because the middle class is kind of an area where uh you can be considered potentially a commoner, potentially an elite. It, it's kind of a gray zone. And in that area, uh, you have more and more people trying to... This is where, like, the disappearance of the middle class... Basically, you had the people in, in America where you had the people that pushed uh, and made it into the upper middle class. Uh, and then you had the people that didn't make it that basically got shoved down into the lower class and the middle class basically disappeared in America um, in modern society. And he kind of goes through some of that a little bit. Uh, not in those words, particularly. Um, so yeah, so you have elite aspirants that basically, so there's a growing portion of the pie that goes to the elites that makes it so that there's more people that want to get that part of the pie and that causes greater competition for that eventually gets to a point where even that greater part of the pie starts to diminish per elite. So like, even though they still do have a greater part of the pie, uh, it makes it so that those elites are, uh, having to share between more and more people. So they're their actual overall well-being starts to decline, and that's when competition starts, which then usually leads to some kind of conflict and civil war. So that's the general cycle uh, that he discusses in the book. Uh, and he, you know, this applies to industrial societies. There's a lot of factors that they use to um, figure that stuff out. So um, one of them being, where did I write these down? Uh, so your, your, um, so you have, uh, growth in, uh, social, oh, here we go, here, here's a good, uh, so the, most of the, almost all of these, um, 
graphs that you'll see on screen are right in the book. So if you get the book, you'll you'll be able to see that. But uh, if we look at here, so you got your uh, time down here and then your general well-being. And we got employment, real wage, health, and family. Uh, and you can kind of see how these uh, cycle. And a lot these are a lot of the indicators that they, they use to kind of figure out uh, general well-being. So, uh, you know, first eight, age of marriage, uh, general height and stature, uh, how much the the real wages compared to uh, the overall GDP, things of that nature are what you are used as proxies to kind of figure out uh, whether or not things are going well or not within the society. Um, the elite overproduction, so um, well-being, so I got all those. The elite overproduction indicators, uh, there's a couple, the two main ones are uh, law and business student uh, production, especially law students and how long and how expensive it is to get a law degree uh, because if you look at most, um, what you call it, and here's a great, uh, great graph for that. So basically the amount of, uh, years you need to save up to be able to pay the tuition for a, a law degree. And, you know, you can see it kind of coming and going. That's, that's the increased expense means that there's more people that are aspiring to get into that elite status, or they feel like it's over. Uh, they already have too much saturation, so they're trying to cut people off and make it so that they can't afford it and kind of uh, create that bifurcation right there. And uh, that's why you have these increases and decreases in the overall amount of uh, cost of these these tuitions. Uh, and that kind of bled over, as we can see in the general uh, education as well, because, uh, you know, general education has also been one of those things that has been going up because of this increased uh, demand for elite and one interesting thing that he notes, and that I wonder if it spills over into other aspects of other professions, is there's this bifurcation within the law. So if you're a lawyer, you either, if you basically make it, so you, it already costs a ton of money to get a law degree. And then on top of that, you basically, your starting wage is either bonkers or you don't get paid enough to ever pay off your tuition. So your starting wage is either $50,000 or it's like $160,000. And that's basically, did you make it or did you not make it kind of uh, level. And generally, this isn't the case. Usually, it's there's a, a median average, and then it, it goes up slowly. And you don't have this uh, very pronounced split. But because of the discordant age that we're kind of in, we have this very pronounced split. And I'm actually kind of curious if you can see that split in other uh, professions as well, whether or not you see that in engineering or uh, medicine. I know medicine, it's kind of split, but it's a little different. Uh, if you're just a normal uh, everyday doctor, like a pediatrician type, um, you get paid like, it's not 60000 but it's it's probably not enough to cover it. But then if you're like a surgeon, and that's why we have so many specialty um, doctors in the United States, is because the surgeon's starting salary is like 250000 And the amount that it costs to go get those degrees and like the extra cost of going to like a surgeon school is worth the the money you've already put in to go get your um md doctor's license uh to get that like 150k pay bump or whatever it, you know it's that's like you know you're, you're spending maybe like 50k more 
I don't know actually no numbers, but let's let's say 50k more, they get like 150k pay bump. So that's where uh, the doctors kind of have that bifurcation. Uh, I don't know about engineers. I don't know about uh, some of these other um, jobs. I know it's one of the obvious ones would probably be your uh, a lot of your fake degrees, right? Your underwater basket weaving and stuff like that. Uh, anybody that gets a job in that um, obviously is very successful, and then most of them are not able to do that. They they're in that barista. Um, phase and never be able to pay off their college debt so uh there you also have that verification so it is kind of permeating throughout um all of society which i find interesting uh so he goes through that then he goes through the different um eras within the united states so you have he basically breaks it into uh, four different eras so you have uh, 1780 up to basically the civil war then you have the civil war up to uh world war ii-ish era and the world war ii era to the 80s and then 80s till now so those are the different eras that he splits it into um and the reason for that is those are kind of the the cycles. so there's he he classifies two different cycles so there's one that starts uh at the formation of the united states uh, 1780 with the signing of the um constitution and that goes up to the civil war and that's our our first completed cycle and then the second cycle goes from after the civil war all the way up to the modern era and we haven't completed this current cycle yet um so that's kind of where things stand uh and that's why he decided he wanted to look at the united states because there are all of these um red flag indicators that he can kind of see that he wants to be able to write the ship on and you know he has an optimistic view of the whole thing at the very end of the um book he goes through and he's like, look, we haven't had great models and ways of understanding how these societies and dynamics flow. Uh, you know, you, you had maybe a gut feeling of how these things flowed. Now we have more quantifiable uh, data and ways of looking at these that give us a better understanding of, yes, this is how things work. Um, and maybe there's steps that can be taken to right the ship and make it so we don't uh, sail off a cliff. Now, with the amount of divisiveness that exists in society right now, I rather doubt that, but that doesn't mean it isn't technically possible. Um, so, yeah, so it gives, uh, one thing that I find interesting, so there's a lot of different models that I kind of have floating around in my head, and I think this is a really good and interesting way to, of looking at the world, but it, there's always kind of the wonder of like, how does this fit in with the other models? And I, I think overall it does fit in well. Um, I'm going to have to look at kind of some of the edge cases and corner cases and see exactly how they all fit together. But overall, I find this a very complimentary um, uh, way of viewing the world and, and uh, model of the world that you can use to complement some of the other things. So, uh, you know, you have the fourth generation warfare looking at the world um, that you can kind of, I basically, uh, the the Lind, um, fourth generation warfare book and Martin Van Krebel's, uh, transformation of war book, right? How those, how you have this transformation in war and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, is this, you can kind of add that into this age of discord where you have this massive change in, in understanding, and then you add on these structural dynamic things and you can be like, Oh, this is maybe one of the things that's leading to, you know, it's, uh, if we go, uh, you know, it's maybe another factor that you could add to your cyclic cycle uh, at looking at these overall larger trends. So that one I don't see as really a, a big one and the, a, a big one that's in conflict. And then the other one is my debt collapse kind of 
theories and stuff like that about how we have so much debt that the entire thing's going to collapse. And again, that's not really an issue. This is one of the reasons we have these cycles is because uh, we have debt. I don't... He used, like, the debt of the um, uh, United States, like, uh, sovereign debt, as a way of showing where you could have issues because there's certain times where uh, sovereign insolvency cause issues, but it was usually a tack-on. Uh, like, you didn't need the sovereign sovereign insolvency to have the crisis. But um, if you had sol sovereign insolvency, there was usually a crisis going on. Um, so it was more like something that happened when there was a crisis. It, it, you never had it where it was like, everything's going great. And then we had a sover sovereign uh, debt insolvency issue. Uh, those two things don't correlate. So, um, and he doesn't look at, uh, personal debt either. And I think and this isn't like a knock on the book or anything. Uh, but I think that's another factor you could add into this overall model and mo uh, map it. And I think it, you would see a lot of, uh, similar curves to the things that you, we have here where you have your stature and your life expectancy and how they map to themselves. Uh, you have the, the debt burden, debt, bur debt burden of society. And when they, the age at which they take on that debt burden might be another good factor to understanding these ages of discord a little bit better. Uh, so it'd be interesting to, uh, maybe figure those out and, and map them to, uh, what's already been mapped and, and see what pops out, you know, from the data. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, looks at industrial societies. So uh, one thing that was pretty interesting that he highlighted and, and talked about, um, and I, I've talked about this in the last couple uh, when I was talking about nobility and, and things like that, is uh, when the commoners rise up and the elites are uh, all on the same page, they that rebellion doesn't succeed. Uh, that's generally how it goes. It's uh, It kind of sucks that that's how it is, but uh, that's, that's how it goes. So if you look at the Civil War through this structural dynamic, uh, demographic analysis uh, lens, you see that the Civil War wasn't so much about freeing the slaves and all that stuff. I mean, obviously, that's what they're going to tell people to uh, go fight a war, right? You're not going to be like, uh, we want that land over there, so that's why we're going to fight it. would be like, oh, no, that's our ancestral homeland, and, and therefore, we, we're owed it, so that's why we're going to go fight and kick you off that land and take the land, right? You always have to come up with a good story, a good narrative to uh, go and actually start a war. Uh, you're, that's why you have the Casas Bellies um, in games and stuff like that, and, and in real life. <laughs> um, but, uh, so the Civil War was actually about the Northern, or at least his conclusion from his book is that the Civil War was actually about uh, Northern industrialist elites trying to supplant uh, your agrarian Southern elites and because they won the Civil War, they were successfully able to do so. Uh, the Southerners were basically the ones that had a run of the place up until the Civil War. And uh, with Lincoln coming in and the expansion of the states, they saw their uh, power slipping. So that's why they ended up kind of deciding, all right, Civil War time, we're going we're gonna to dip. Which, according to the Constitution, they did ha legally have the right to do. Um, but they, then the, the Civil War was fought, they lost, and, uh, and they got supplanted. Um, by your industrial northern. And that's where you get the... So you, you go from your antebellum uh, southern uh, colonial-type 
attitude and elite um, feel to your wasp. That, that's, this is when the wasps take over, your white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Uh, that's, that's where you have that changeover. Um, and so, and then we can obviously see that the industrialists are the ones that dominated, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s society until the progressive era. And the progressive era caused a lot of issues for them because, um, they wanted to keep wages low. So they kept flooding America with migrants and that caused a lot of pressure on wages, mainly because people are coming from Europe and they're landing on the Eastern seaboard and there was a ton of land, but you know, it, it's already a big journey to get to Europe from Europe to America then to go from the eastern seaboard and basically go all the way west, uh, you're going across like almost half the world to uh, have to just to find a spot that you can kind of settle down. So basically, this caused a concentration of people within the eastern seaboard. Uh, we still see, you know, it's the most heavily urbanized area in America today still, and. This basically suppressed wages, which was good for the industrialists. They wanted to do that, but eventually it, it led to a breaking point where uh, actually the political instability of the time was higher than before the Civil War. Uh, you know, if you're not familiar with the era, there was a lot of anarchists, uh, bombings, uh, presidential assassinations. That's how, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Teddy Roosevelt became president. He was never actually elected. He was vice president, and then uh, I think William McKinley was murdered, uh, or... Uh, assassinated and he became the president and you know it was by these uh anarchists of the early 1900s uh a lot of times communist based pretty much exclusively communist based actually um and so this presented a greater threat that threat of being able to being thrown out of power presented a greater threat to them personally than raising people's wages a little bit and coming to compromise on a lot of union type stuff. So that's where, this is one of the things that kicked off the progressive era was, uh, you know, and shutting down the immigration and all that stuff from this era is the benefit from importing these people from Eastern Europe uh, was lower than the, like the, the lower wages was disadvantaged by the fact that they had um, these ideas of communism, stuff like that, that they were bringing over and they had a much more likely uh, they're much more likely to try to form unions and things like that within society. So uh, that's where they shut things down and things started to improve. And that's where you, you kind of have uh, some of these improvements through the Gilded Age. Obviously, we have the Great Depression that kind of messes things up for a lot of people. But we get through that, we get to World War II, and then, then we have a very successful uh, era. And so we have, we did have a lot of issues, but they were able to get through them uh, without... Uh, too much issue, I guess, is the best best way of saying it. Um, so, just, oh, and one thing, just kind of on a side note, the, uh, so one of the indicators that they use is first, for uh, general well-being, is the first age of marriage. And, oh, it's not this one. Um, one of these has first age of marriage in it. Uh, maybe they don't. Nope. Okay, I guess I didn't download that one. But, um, let's just use this family one. So, interestingly, the age of first uh, marriage was the lowest it has ever been in American history. 
during the baby boomer generation in the 18 or not 18 1960s which is kind of crazy because generally when we think about uh, when the age of people get married and stuff like that it's oh when they were out in uh, the 1800s and they need to get married super young so they could have like 12 kids so they could they could run the farmstead and stuff like that. And that was definitely a factor back then. But it's interesting to see that the economic well-being allow in the 1860s, or like the post-World War II American era, allowed for such economic opportunity that uh, people felt economically secure to start families at, I think the average is like 21, which is crazy that that's the average. That means like almost everyone's getting married like 18 to like... 21 basically like you have to have a lot of people below 21 because uh, you're going to have your people that are getting married at 30 and 40 and stuff like that well 40 is a little high but um I, I just found that very interesting uh that we generally we think of like people getting married young and having large families and stuff like that as a, a thing of the previous eras and that and it's an inter interesting factor that that was the the lowest age of marriage was in the 60s uh, there's a lot of other issues and and psychological operations that had happened around there but uh, that has nothing to do with age of discord so we're not going to touch on that um uh oh i also wanted to highlight so on my last video i talked about elite overproduction and how to kind of combat that and one of the things i didn't factor in to the overall aspect of that was that when the commoners get squeezed a lot of those commoners are going to seek, uh, become elite aspirants. And even if the path and the likelihood is um, risky or dangerous or something like that, uh, a lot of times the risk is worth it because, and that's that's one of the reasons that, and one of the ways they can keep selling college, is like, right now it's kind of flipped, where not going to college, it, there's better options. You can be a welder, you can be uh, some of these other things that are very well-paying. But for a while, uh, part of it was just a lie. But part of it was, like, this is your only option. Like, this is a bad option, and it's, like, the likelihood things work out is not good. But it's still, like, and this is basically the selling line. Like, it's not a good option. You, there's a lot of downsides to it, and the probability that you succeed is low. But the probability that you succeed if you go the other route is basically zero. So you have to do this. Um, and so that puts a lot of pressure on a lot of the institutions and stuff like that that I was talking about of uh, limiting uh, elite overproduction because if you're in that kind of situation where people risk almost anything to get into those ranks, uh, it's going to be hard to completely shut people out without causing some form of instability. So I just wanted to add that little note. Uh, probably putting that 23 minutes into the video, probably not the best idea, but... Um, and then uh, one last little thing. So as I was reading through, there's an interesting aspect where uh, uh, Church Insights, a newspaper, I think it was a business uh, magazine, with an interesting perspective on big business. Um, so I've talked about the Middle Ages a lot and how <clears throat> you had these different uh, groups that kept each other in check. So you had the church, you had the, uh, the crown, the nobility, and the towns. So... Gen basically a power vac not a power vacuum but a, a lot mass consolidation happened in the 1700 or 16 1700s early modern period 
of those institutions where the nobility got subsumed by uh, the crown, the uh, church kind of became subservient and uh, lost a lot of its political power uh, to the crown, and the towns basically didn't have the military might to resist the crown. That's, that's kind of how it went. <clears throat> and so basically, the state is now the sole... It's not the sole one, but for the most part, it is kind of the sole arbiter, and most other things work within its structure. Instead of being separate, outside political entities that are fighting for top dog status. You're, like, the state will always be the top dog, and you're just working to try to get uh, the highest placing within that system. That's kind of how our modern state system works. So, <clears throat> uh, but to this still is within the state system, but an aspect of that secondary rivalry, political power, kind of rose up in the early 1900s. And Churchill makes point of this uh, through this newspaper that had this writing back then, which I, is rather interesting. So, uh, so it has an interesting perspective on biz, big business. Uh, it rolls up as a response to government pressure, sim uh, similar to how unions are effective tools for workers to get better conditions uh, through working, worker consolidation. Business consolidation was necessary to amass the influence needed to resist and counterbalance political forces. Uh, similar to how the nobility and the church counterbalanced the crown in the medieval period. So what I mean by consolidation is, you know, uh, they say uh, big business is the biggest fan of government. And to an extent, that's true. But <clears throat> you, a lot of these conglomerations and stuff like that were a response to a lot of the political, you know, the, the political class had no check on their power. And so they could kind of do things to business and there was no effective means to uh, fight them, and so one of the ways that they could fight them is the ones that were particularly business savvy, uh, were able to buy up a lot of the small ones, become a kind of political tool. Think your Facebooks and Googles and stuff like that now, and really resist uh, the the governments and stuff like that. Not, I mean, like they obviously worked hand in hand with them to an extent as well, but uh, you know, you you get some concessions. You know, it's a compromise. Like, all right, you're gonna back off on this thing here, and you're gonna let us, you know. Uh, run workers into the ground and bring in scra uh, scabs to break up union uh, strikes and all this stuff. And in exchange, we'll, we'll do XYZ regulation that you guys put in. And so you kind of have, you know, the, the libertarian, um, not argument, but issue with big business and big government kind of wetting themselves together and, and the problems that come from that is relevant in this this context but uh it, it's in a sense it was a response to political pressures um you know I, it, everything's dynamic everything's got costs and benefits and, and downsides and upsides and so big business is an issue and it's it's a problem and currently we like to break up a lot of the stuff right now but uh if you have just mom and pop shops everywhere which i do enjoy you know they don't have the political um coherency to push back against overregulation and stuff like that. And so even though some of that overregulation does help those big businesses, there are aspects of it that they prevent governments from putting in some of the their uh, worst um, instincts or intentions would, would have them do. So um, th those are just kind of my thoughts on the book and uh, what it's about, whether or not you should, I think you should read it. I think it's a good read and worth, worth your time, in my opinion, especially if you're interested in, 
the what uh, Peter Churchin calls collider dynamics, basically the aspect of looking at society uh, at large and all the different aspects that go into shaping and forming a society. So uh, I think it was a really cool book and really interesting. Uh, taught me a lot, um, and uh, was was worth worth the read. Do do recommend. Uh, but anyway, uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, you can find me on YouTube, BitChute, and uh, Podbean. And uh, hopefully you guys found this interesting, and have yourselves a good day. Goodbye.